Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. In the 1820s, Elijah Pearson was the embodiment of the Christian masculinity that typified the Second Great Awakening. Elijah was descended from a long line of patriots and blue bloods raised in Morristown, New Jersey, in both relative wealth and in the social order set by the Calvinist theology of Morristown First Presbyterian. Sometime in the early 19th century, Elijah moved from his small town to New York City, where he, like so many young men like him, sought to find his own destiny in the marketplace, becoming a clerk and eventually an affluent business owner. Elijah was strong in his religious belief, which brought him to his faithful wife, Sarah, with whom he prayed, worked missions, and had one child. He did everything right. He was respected in the community. He became a deacon in his and Sarah's church and adhered to modern ideas about leading a household within the parameters of the gender construct that we call separate spheres. His wife, though not exactly his equal, was his partner, and he treated her with gentleness and respect. He was clean cut, restrained, and decidedly middle class. Yes, Elijah Pearson was the embodiment of early 19th century Christian masculinity. So how did he end up, just a few years later, shambling along the streets of New York City with a scruffy beard, long hair, and dirty fingernails following a wild-eyed prophet? And, perhaps more disturbingly, how did he end up at the center of a sensational murder trial? And we mean literally at the center. He was the dead guy. If you're a historian of the United States, you've probably already guessed what we're talking about. And chances are, if you ever had to take an American religious history class or even an early American or Jacksonian American class, you may have read this book. Those of you who haven't, well, gee whiz, you are in for a wild ride. Today, we're talking about a book that is a true classic in the field of American religious history, Sean Wilentz and Paul Johnson's 1994 book, The Kingdom of Matthias. I'm Sarah. And I'm Averill. And we are your historians for this episode of Dig. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters and especially our fabulous auger and excavator level patrons. That's Lauren, Hannah, Iris, Colin, Susan, Edward, Agnes, Denise, Jessica, Karen, Maria, and Audrey. We can't thank you enough. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of this show, it's easy. Just go to patreon.com slash digpodcast to learn more. Let's start by setting the stage, because the context of America, especially New York State, in the 1820s and 1830s is actually really important to understanding the saga of Elijah Pearson. The Erie Canal, which crossed New York State from Albany to Buffalo and connected the Hudson River with the Great Lakes, opened in 1825, making it possible for goods from the interior of America to make it to ports in New York City, Boston, and Philadelphia. The canal led to booming business in New York State's upstate cities like Buffalo, Rochester, Syracuse, Utica, Rome. But with all that canal traffic and the booming businesses and the increased population that came with it um, came chaos, right? Or at least the perception of chaos. Rumors spread that central and western New York were suddenly lawless and godless with no churches in entire counties and, and plagued with rampant drinking. Motivated by the idea that rural New York State was wallowing in sin, missionary societies like the American Missionary Society began to flood the region with church planters flush with cash, each eager to build a new church and convert the residents of backwoods towns. But the problem was that there wasn't actually any shortage of preachers or churches in western New York. One report published in Boston claimed that there were five townships in Niagara County that had no churches or clergy at all, but in reality, there were two full-time pastors and dozens of weekly church services in that area. 
So when the missionary societies started funding new churches in the region, it resulted in almost an oversaturation of religion. So instead of having no churches, residents of rural New York actually had an overabundance. The result was that the population had the privilege of being very picky when it came to what church they gave their attentions and tithes. When a pastor was too boring, a message too stale, or a church too old-fashioned, they quickly and easily switched to another. The people learned to listen and were ready to be won over by a particularly effective preacher. And the effective preacher that really set the region ablaze was Charles Grandison Finney. Finney was born in Connecticut, but like many other New Englanders after the American Revolution, his family moved to upstate New York for better access to farmland. They settled along the shores of Lake Ontario in Jefferson County, New York. Um, It's so weird because it happens to be exactly where one of the producers of this podcast grew up. I wonder who it is. Who could that be, Sarah? Oh, it's me. It's me. Oh. It's me. I grew up literally like 15 minutes from where he uh, ends up working uh, and living. So anyway, back to Charles Grandison Finney. Uh, Finney was, quote unquote, reading the law. That's what you did in the early 19th century instead of going to law school. You read the law to become a lawyer. And you did that usually working as an assistant um, to a lawyer. And he was doing that in a law office in uh, this nearby small town of Adams. Finney's family worshipped at a local Baptist church in Henderson, New York, and Finney helped to direct the choir. But something about this was just not working for him, and he became disaffected from his faith. Once when his church's prayer group asked if they could pray for him through this sort of spiritual crisis, he pointed out that they seemed to pray an awful lot, but nothing ever seemed to come of it. He said, you've prayed enough since I attended these meetings to have prayed the devil out of Adams if there's any virtue in your prayers. Finney had a spiritual crisis in 1821, just feeling completely disconnected from God and unsure about his faith. Trying to figure this all out, he spent a lot of time walking in the woods around Adams. And I assure you, there are plenty of woods around Adams to walk around in. And one day, as he was walking and praying, Finney had a vision of a bright light streaming out um, from the sky, kind of illuminating excerpts of scripture kind of floating around him. He felt God's presence. I never can, he wrote in his memoirs, in words, make any human being understand how precious and true those promises appeared to me. The next morning, after an evening spent weeping, playing hymns, and praying, he felt called to preach, which meant he had to quit his job. This wasn't ideal for his clients. When one stopped into his office that morning, he reminded Finney politely that his case was being heard in court at 10 that morning. Finney responded firmly that he had, quote, a retainer from the Lord Jesus Christ to plead his cause, and I cannot plead yours. This was understandably confusing for the poor man, who wandered into the street and stood looking about dumbfounded. Finney interpreted this as his client being, quote, in a higher religious state than he had ever been in before. (laughs) Rather than just being like, what is my lawyer talking about? (laughs) (laughs) This part of Finney's memoirs is just amazing. It's so funny. It's a lot. That same year, Finney began studying to enter the ministry in the Presbyterian Church. And by 1824, he was traveling Jefferson County, spreading the message of conversion. Later in the 1820s, Finney became one of the preachers sponsored by a missionary society, this time a women's missionary society located in Utica, New York, tasked with traveling around the North Country and Mohawk Valley, preaching to some of the most rural and remote residents of the state. According to historian Whitney Cross, who wrote the foundational history of this era of religious revival back in 1950, he estimated that Finney helped to convert something around 3,000 people during this period of his ministry. In 1830, Finney moved to Rochester, joining the roiling revivalism that was starting to spread from that central city along the canal, the revivalism that would become known as the Second Great Awakening. Finney was not the only religious leader to spark something exciting or new in the 1820s in central or western New York. 
before the Second Great Awakening really took off, new religious movements like the Shakers and the Society of Universal Friends had already established themselves in that region. And at around the same time that Finney was beginning to form his ministry, Joseph Smith received the first revelations from the angel Moroni in Palmyra, New York. Those revelations, contained on golden tablets buried in the Hill Cumorah, would eventually be published in 1830 as the Book of Mormon. And there were more. In the 1830s, William Miller, a farmer and military veteran living in eastern uh, rural New York, began to find followers for his belief that the world was rapidly coming to an end and that Jesus would return very specifically on October 22nd, 1843. And of course, most relevant to our interests here at Dig, three girls in a farmhouse outside of Rochester began to communicate with the spirit of a dead peddler, leading to the birth of spiritualism. But even within all of this, Finney and his followers remain sort of the most influential to the broader American culture. It's not that the other movements or leaders weren't important, but that Finney held the greatest cultural sway on more average Americans, and therefore his teaching had a broader impact on other aspects of society. This was also because Finney was a mainline Protestant preacher. He wasn't trying to convince anyone that Jesus was returning in the next year or that he could speak to the dead. Instead, he was largely speaking to middle and upper class white Americans who had lost the fire of religiosity, convincing them to reform their lives and the world around them. Finneyites believed that individuals could be saved through repentance and prayer, a far cry from old-fashioned Calvinist beliefs and predestination. Moreover, through right living, hard work, and piety, they could create a better world. Being a Finneyite, or someone who was influenced by Finney's preaching, meant adhering to a certain kind of gendered worldview as well. We've talked about 19th century gender roles, especially masculinity, in previous episodes in more depth. Check them out. Men were hardworking, usually in a white-collar or skilled trade, and resisted any urges toward anger or passion. They spent their money in ways that furthered the work of Christ instead of in barrooms. They prayed with their wives and, while they remained the head of the household, happily allowed their wives to take charge of managing the house and raising the children. In other words, Finneyite men were restrained, careful, moral, and actively Christian, all things that would end up becoming synonymous with genteel American domesticity. But as influential and as important as Finney and his ethos was, it doesn't account for everyone caught up in revivalism of the 1820s and 30s. Not everyone could fit into this vision of American perfection, and not everyone wanted to. Other slightly smaller Christian sects were drawing crowds of Americans who didn't fit into the Finneyite vision or who simply rejected its middle-class perfectionism. Some rejected Finney's teaching specifically because of its gentler, less patriarchal vision of masculinity. According to historians Paul Johnson and Sean Wilentz, quote, these anti-Finneyites remained grimly committed to the Old Testament patriarchy of their fathers, a hallowed family form that had dominated rural America when they were children, and that both market society and the Finneyite revivals seemed determined to destroy. Johnson and Wilentz also point out the ways that Finney's rivals used their religious teachings to shore up traditional forms of masculinity, including Joseph Smith, who asked his followers to call him Father Smith, and who installed his own father as patriarch of his new Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This brings us back to Elijah Pearson, who was a picture-perfect Finneyite Christian. That is, until something changed in the summer of 1830. Pearson was raised in Morristown, New Jersey, descending from a long family established in Puritanism. His three times great-grandfather, Abraham Pearson, had led a group of disaffected Puritans to New Jersey from Connecticut in 1666 when that colony relaxed the requirements for baptism and church membership. Elijah was raised in the town's first Presbyterian church, where his father and uncle were both trustees. He would have been completely immersed in the teachings of the church, which emphasized strict social hierarchies, a fear of the all-powerful God, and the sinful nature of all people. When Elijah was a young man, 
he left behind Morristown for Manhattan, where he pursued a career in the booming mercantile business. Unlike his forebears, he postponed marriage and a family to build a career, and in 1820, when he was in his early 30s, he opened a successful mercantile firm with a partner. We want to quote here from Johnson and Willens again because we really like the way they explained this difference. They explained that Pearson's father and grandfather had married very young and had massive families, but that Pearson himself was still unmarried at 36. Quote, but in New York City, such arrangements made no sense. Elijah's fortunes were tied not to an inherited farm set within a network of kin, but to individual ambition, risk-taking, and accumulation of money. Early marriage, a large family, and the assumption of fatherly pretensions would have, would have doomed him to failure, end quote. So what had helped make his forefathers patriarchs would have doomed Elijah to poverty in the new economy of the market revolution. During his 30s, Elijah joined a new church and began volunteering for the church's female missionary society, which ran an outreach church in an impoverished, largely black neighborhood. While Elijah and a male pastor were the heads of the mission, it was almost entirely run by women, right? They were doing the actual work. Um, while Elijah and a male pastor were the heads of the mission, it was almost entirely run by women who did the work of making home visits around the neighborhood. During this time, Elijah met Sarah Stanford, the daughter of a minister and widely understood to be a serious, intelligent, cultivated, and extremely pious woman of God. Elijah and Sarah married in 1822, which not only changed Elijah's domestic life because he was absolutely devoted to Sarah, but it also changed his social and religious life. Elijah left his old church and joined Sarah's, which brought him more firmly into the world of evangelical reform. This is also when Elijah's life became hugely influenced by women. Sarah began attending prayer meetings led by a woman named Frances Folger, who taught a kind of Christian perfectionism that rejected pretension, luxury, and, very importantly, direct communication with the Holy Spirit. In 1828, Elijah began to receive those direct messages from the Holy Spirit. And soon after, he and Sarah, along with their friends, Benjamin and Anne Folger, who will become really critical to this story later on, moved to a neighborhood of New York City called Bowery Hill, where Francis Folger was establishing uh, a perfectionist society. Elijah, now considered a kind of prophet, began to preach in Bowery Hill, teaching and praying and fasting with a kind of religious fervor. Sarah and Elijah established a female asylum, which was aimed at getting young women to leave the sex trade. In 1830, however, everything changed, and for two reasons. One, Elijah had a powerful vision while on the bus, an omnibus, a big carriage pulled by horses, from God, telling him, quote, Thou art Elijah the Tishbite, Gather unto me all the memes of Israel at the foot of Mount Carmel. Elijah took this to mean that he must prepare the world for the second coming of Jesus, and in particular, healing the sick to prepare for his return. The other was that Sarah died, despite all of Elijah's prayers for healing. Something in Sarah's death unmoored Elijah, whose visions and prophecies took on a more unhinged quality. Now Elijah announced that Sarah's funeral would be her moment of resurrection. He prayed fervently over Sarah's open coffin for an hour, while Francis Folger watched Sarah's body for signs of life. None appeared. Finally, Elijah stopped praying, exhausted, and the rest of the followers gathered, closed Sarah's coffin, and carried it to the graveyard. This is a, a really, I think, the, one of the most affecting scenes in this whole book is this moment where all of Elijah's sort of friends and followers are gathered in, in the parlor and he's just frantically praying over Sarah's body and they all are sort of expecting this miracle and they believe that this miracle is going to happen so strongly that they actually have a doctor there who um, they're hoping is going to be able to sh like see signs of life in Sarah. And instead, um, he's the one that ends up begging them to stop and to go bury her because she's literally decomposing in front of their eyes. Um, it's, it's really, really, um, really sad. 
But regardless of all of this, um, Elijah was still convinced that Sarah wasn't totally gone. Um, He began to tell the others that she appeared to one of their servants, a, a woman, a black woman named Katie. God spoke to Elijah regularly with the messages almost always relating to Sarah. In December, six months after Sarah's death, Elijah was still receiving revelations that, quote, thy companion shall be raised up and shall be with thee in thy work. When Elijah prayed to God, asking whether he was understanding correctly and that, you know, would would Sarah actually be returned to him, God apparently replied, quote, did I ever give you a stone for bread or a serpent for fish? But Sarah never returned. Elijah's missions fell apart. The female asylum was momentarily sort of taken over by a larger organization, but those other reformers didn't want to continue to work with Elijah while he was in this deeply unhealthy state. By 1831, Elijah quit working at his mercantile farm and devoted his entire life to his ministry. His community dwindled down to a few of his most devoted followers, including his two black house servants, Katie and Isabella. Uh, as well as the Folgers, Benjamin and Anne, uh, one reformed sex worker from the female asylum, and sort of a handful of other people. It was in this state that Prophet Elijah Pearson's life collided with that of another prophet, Robert Matthews, or as he became known, Matthias. Matthews was born in rural upstate New York along the Vermont border, in a strictly religious family of Scottish immigrants. The family adhered to a splinter sect of Presbyterianism that was extremely Calvinist. They believed fiercely in predestination and that God was judging and watching every moment. They were simple, serious, and devout. Their society and their church was patriarchal. While all were equal before God in terms of wealth and status, men were absolutely always in positions of authority. Robert's parents died when he was young, but he didn't seem cut out for life in agriculture, so he apprenticed to become a carpenter. But even with a trade, Robert Matthews was constantly in trouble. He proselytized to his co-workers and ripped into them for their sins, especially for drinking. In 1811, he assaulted and beat a woman named Hester Matthews, who may have been his sister-in-law. Unfortunately, this turned out not to be an isolated incident. In 1813, he married a woman named Margaret and began having children, and while he enjoyed several years of stability as a shopkeeper in a small town, he also had a few incidents of what sound like seizures. In 1816, however, an economic downturn and overstretching his resources led to bankruptcy for Matthews, and a series of terrible illnesses killed two of his sons. When Matthews himself became seriously ill, he started having more fits and headaches, Um, accompanied by periods of intense rage. He also started to preach and became obsessed with one new religious movement, then another. First, it was Methodism. Then it was the teachings of Jewish utopian Mordecai Manuel Noah, who planned to build a Jewish refuge on Grand Island, a large island in the Niagara River uh, near Buffalo, New York. It's, It's right near here. Uh, Matthews moved his family around, seeking work and religious truth, finally ending up in Albany. There, he was swept up into Finneite-style revivals. Increasingly obsessed with evangelizing, Matthews just stopped working entirely. When his weird behavior and annoying tactics started to earn him scorn from other men, he took out his frustrations not on them, but on his wife, who he had started beating regularly. When Matthews tried to join a Finneyite congregation, it became clear he just didn't fit, right? Wife beating, failing to work and provide for the family, and acting erratically were not part of the masculine vision of Finney's teaching. The breaking point came when the Finneyite church learned about Matthews' wife beating and not only rejected his bid for membership, but reached out to Margaret with support for her and her children. And Margaret ended up uh, starting to attend that church regularly. Matthews tried one more time to join that church. But one day when he showed up, the exasperated minister publicly shamed him for hitting Margaret and being a failed provider, which, you know, to me sounds pretty reasonable. Robert Matthews now considered the Finneites his enemies. He also sort of went off the deep end. 
He thought a biblical flood was headed for their home, and when Margaret told him to get it together, he abducted their sons and disappeared. Because Margaret was now a protected part of the Finney Church, Matthew's erratic and violent behavior was getting police attention as well as making the local news. He was discovered, arrested, and held for a while in, in an almshouse. He returned home only to be arrested again for domestic disturbance. Soon, Matthews decided it would be better to just leave. It was then that he started calling himself Matthias, a prophet bringing the, quote, holy word of the one true Lord, the word of God the Father. His message was obsessed with class and gender. He hated those who lived soft, comfortable lives and ignored the suffering of the poor. Women who lectured their husbands were damned. Only real men would enter the kingdom of God. Mock men would also be damned. Here's a really great quote encapsulating this. Quote, the sons of truth are to enjoy all the good things of this world and must use their means to bring it about. Everything that has the smell of woman will be destroyed. Fill of all deviltry. In a short time, the world will take fire and dissolve. It is combustible already. All women, not obedient, had better become so as soon as possible and let the wicked spirit depart and become vessels of truth. <sighs> Sounds like a real peach. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, uh, Matthias traveled around New York trying to find a receptive audience for this message and, as you can probably imagine, struck out. That is, until he ended up in the parlor of the grieving Elijah Pearson on Bowery Hill in New York City. It was a weird scene. Matthias was this big, tall man with a bushy beard. Elijah Pearson, who had you know, kind of diminished in his wild grief, um, and, and they're standing together in this perfectly appointed parlor. Parlors were really the symbol of the Finneyite middle class. So this is really kind of bizarre juxtaposition. Elijah Pearson was everything that Matthias had come to preach against. He was a broken, effeminate man, weeping all of the time for a woman who had talked out of turn. He had uh, listened to women preach. He had spent his time and his energy on women in his ministries. He was never angry. He was never powerful. He was never commanding. Matthias told Elijah that he had come to right these wrongs and that it was his mission to, quote, establish a reign of truth and redeem the world from evils, prophesying women and beaten men. After their conversation, they went into another room and washed each other's feet. And Elijah turned his church over to Matthias. It was his ministry now. Matthias's message to the followers of what had been Elijah's church was based on patriarchy, obsessed with fathers and sons and inheritance. According to him, the spirit of truth passed down from father to son, with the father's spirit literally entering the bodies of their male descendants. Thus it was men, fathers, who were tasked with teaching, since they contained all this accumulated spiritual knowledge. He taught that in 1851 the world would be purified by fire, and Matthias's followers would inherit the world, living in rural palaces and enjoying luxurious lives, quote, surrounded by worshipful children and a happy and dutiful wife, end quote. Matthias, using money provided by Elijah Pearson and other wealthy followers, lived in a rented home, wore extravagant clothing, and rode in fine coaches. He appropriated Elijah's faithful servant, Isabella. Friends and neighbors were stunned at the change in Elijah Pearson, who went from looking like the prototypical Finneyite middle-class middle guy to looking like a wild prophet with long black hair, scruffy beard, and dirty fingernails. Moreover, he told everyone who would listen that his previous visions about Sarah's resurrection from the dead had actually been delusions sent from the devil, and that, quote, Sarah would come back from the dead, and that this time she would be a proper vessel of truth. The small religious community that gathered around Matthias was immediately controversial. Elijah Pearson's friend, Sylvester Mills, a wealthy merchant, had almost immediately taken to Matthias's preaching and had been bankrolling all the weird outfits and coaches along with Elijah. Sylvester's brother, Levi, worried about um, Sylvester's suddenly terrible financial decisions, tried to have Matthias and Mills taken into care for being incompetence. 
Levi showed up with his friends, backed by a group of Finneyite businessmen and the police, um, and snatched Sylvester and quickly hauled him away while the others were, you know, literally wrestling a screaming Matthias to the floor. So Matthias um, was was um, put into an almshouse, but was quickly boosted by Elijah and then was briefly arrested again, this time for blasphemy because of his preaching. Eventually, the whole group moved out to Sing Sing, which at the time was considered the countryside, this time to live with Benjamin and Anne Folger. You might recognize those names. Uh, they were some of Elijah Pearson's earliest comrades and followers. Matthias essentially took over their house, which he named Mount Zion, and turned it into a compound for his band of believers. Matthias was the patriarch, determining the part that each quote-unquote family member would play at Mount Zion. Men and boys were mostly assigned farm work or other masculine tasks. Isabella, the black servant, did almost all of the hardest housework, while the white women were mostly assigned to assist her. Anne Folger, who the prophet seemed particularly drawn to, was tasked with caring for the children, assisting the prophet, and overseeing sort of the entire domestic sphere of Zion. Life at Mount Zion meant living under all of Matthias's rules, which were sometimes based on his own likes and dislikes. Followers were to dress simply, while Matthias wore militaristic clothing and wizardy hats and carried items imbued with mystical significance, including an ancient plumb line, carpenter's rule, and sword. Meals were extremely important and based on what Matthias thought about food. He liked fruit, so they had tons of fruit, and plenty of meat, but never pork. There were never any luxurious desserts and absolutely no pies. <laughs> this was like a weirdly big point. They were like, there were no pies. <laughs> it's like a really big deal. The horror. Even though like he liked fruit, so you'd think that he would love pie. But yeah, no, it was too extravagant for him, apparently. He did not know how to enjoy fruit. No. Food was cooked in old-fashioned ways, particularly ways that would have been common in Matthias's Scots community growing up. Typically boiled. They largely rejected foods associated with the new market economy, such as meats roasted in newfangled ovens, milled white flour, and imported Caribbean sugar. The emphasis was on good plain food. The way food was served was also vital. They rejected the style of dining that was becoming most common in the era, era called the Old English style, in which women cooked the food, brought it to the table, then sat as all members of the family served themselves. At Mount Zion, Matthias, the patriarch, was served separately by the women, and no one was allowed to touch his serving dishes. The others were allowed to serve themselves from common dishes, but the women were not to sit or eat until Matthias had been served. As long as his rules were followed, Matthias was a proud patriarch. But when things went against his plan, he raged, and his followers feared they might be cursed by the powerful prophet. And they had, I should say, they had some reason to, like, believe that he could curse people just because of, like, a sort of coincidental thing that had happened where this couple was joining the church and the man sort of, like, resisted joining when his wife wanted to. And Matthias, like, cursed him out. And then, coincidentally, the guy got really sick and died. <laughs> um, but that, like, affected everyone. Understandably so, right? Everybody was like, oh, my God, Matthias really does have this power. So that's kind of a, a kind of key to understanding why they were so in his thrall. Right. Things got weird at Mount Zion, or maybe more accurately, weirder, because they were already pretty weird, um, in 1833, when the house servant Isabella began to notice something happening between Matthias and Anne Folger. Now, remember, Anne and her husband, Benjamin, had been wealthy Christians who first came into Elijah Pearson's religious fold through the ministry of the wife of one of Benjamin's cousins, Francis Folger. And like, I just have to apologize ahead of time. There are so many names and so many religious groups in this episode. I've tried really hard to always like use people's full names or their first names because there's just so many repeated last names. Anyway, uh, suddenly 
Isabella begins to notice that Anne Folger was often up late with Matthias and often alone. This took place, it should be noted, while Benjamin was living uh, in Manhattan working, right? He had to go back into the city often to, to do the work that was bringing in the money that was keeping this place running. Isabella shared a bedroom with Anne. And so she noticed more than once that Anne snuck in to go to bed well after the rest of the house had gone to sleep. Um, Bathing was also apparently a big deal in this community. Matthias, even though he looked very wild and crazy, expected everyone to bathe almost every evening. And usually the women bathed the other women and the men bathed the other men, right? But one evening... Anne accompanied Matthias to the bathtub to wash him. So it didn't come as a huge surprise then that not long after Anne and Matthias traveled together to Manhattan, where they confronted Benjamin with a new prophecy that Matthias had received from God. They, Anne and Matthias, were matched spirits. And Anne had been prophesied to bear Matthias his holy son who would someday inherit the ministry. Benjamin and Anne's marriage was never real, according to this prophecy, since it was a Christian marriage and not an actual holy union, right? So Matthias is kind of building his own um, sort of structure around what it means to be married. And being legally married, being married in a Christian church is not the same thing. Those are kind of invalid marriages. After some conflict, as you might imagine, Benjamin was convinced uh, that Matthias had to be taken seriously in all of his holy visions. And so he himself gave his wife over in a spiritual wedding ceremony to Matthias. Well, pretty, pretty weird. Pretty weird. (laughs) Well, this left Benjamin, ostensibly, single. His legal marriage still stood since divorce was extremely difficult. Sometime later, Benjamin was sent by Matthias to gather two of his children from their mother, Margaret, his beleaguered legal wife. Margaret, who had raised the children almost entirely on her own, accepted the offer to send Johnny, who was 11, and Isabella, who was 20, yes, there's yet another Isabella, to live with their father for a while. This Isabella had actually just gotten married to an English immigrant named Charles Laisdell. But this was immaterial to Matthias. It didn't take long for Matthias to start beating Isabella Laysdale for insubordination. She wouldn't call Anne Folger her mother, for instance. But then Matthias got an idea. In very short order, Matthias declared that Benjamin Folger should have a new wife, his own daughter, Isabella Laysdale. Matthias married them himself in the parlor. But things soon started to fall apart at Mount Zion. Isabella Van Wagenen, this was the the black servant um, that had first worked for Elijah Pearson and then works for uh, Matthias, started to get a little disillusioned. Anne Folger, who was now set up as kind of a, a queen as the prophet's wife, stopped helping out with any of the housework and instead began complaining about all of Isabella's housework. Um, The couple became sort of lazy, and their laziness often made Isabella's work even harder. So, for instance, one day the couple sleeps in, which means that Isabella is having a hard time, like, getting things done because they sleep in the parlor. So she can't, like, make fires or or make beds or anything because they're, like, kind of taking up the middle of the house. Matthias then tries to explain that when they sleep in, their spirits are actually entering into Isabella, which makes it easier for her to do her chores. Isabella was not buying that argument. But more problematic still was the arrival of Charles Laisdell, Isabella Laisdell's husband. And, you know, he's a little confused about the sudden disappearance of his new wife. Elijah Pearson paid him off to get him to to leave. But Laisdell still started telling everyone he met about this weird situation that he saw at Mount Zion. Then Laisdell got a court order for his wife. Now, this does sound a little weird, but remember, effectively, Isabella legally belonged to her husband, Charles. The crew at Mount Zion had little choice but to present Isabella Laisdell at court, 
where Charles produced a legal marriage certificate to the judge, who then, of course, declared Isabella legally had to return to her legal husband, not her spiritual husband. The court case made all of the neighbors gossip, and crowds started to gather around the house, yelling and breaking down the fences and trampling the yard. In the meantime, a new family had chosen a terrible time to join the religious community at Mount Zion. The Thompson family joined Mount Zion largely because Mr. Thompson, no first name was ever recorded, was hoping to live in a communal sect where men were respected. Well, he was satisfied at first, it wasn't long until his wife Elizabeth started to notice that there seemed to be a lot of bed hopping going on. Thompson thought his wife probably just misinterpreted something and let it go. But then the community learned that when Benjamin and Anne left Mount Zion and went back to Manhattan to take care of the business, they continued to sleep together. Usually this was just because they were well-known publicly as a legally married couple, and they were just keeping up appearances. Until on a recent trip when Matthias had caught them in bed. It looked an awful lot like they had been up to some late-night activities. Wink, wink. Bow, bow, bow. Mr. Thompson considered that the final straw and remarked to Isabella Van Wagenen, quote, There is too much changing of wives here. I have a nice little woman, and I should not much like to lose her. That was my favorite quote in the whole thing. (laughs) The changing of the wives. Uh, Things were not well between Benjamin Folger and Matthias. Keep in mind, Benjamin Folger is, like, having a really tough time, right? Like, he is bankrolling this whole thing. This guy has taken over his entire house. He's stolen his wife. He did give him a nice, hot young wife, right, his his daughter, but then she got yanked away, and now he's single, and, and you know, things are not going well. And so he starts to kind of doubt what, what Matthias has going on. Uh, a business plan, for instance, to manufacture and sell stoves, which I think is kind of funny because, yes the exact kind of stoves that Matthias thought were symbolic of the evils of modernity. Um, This was a a plan that they thought was going to save the community financially had fallen through. Um, And Benjamin was worrying about how his personal finances had been wrecked by supporting this community. One night, uh, Benjamin got drunk in the village near Mount Zion, all the time worrying out loud about the community and about Matthias. His worries got the villagers even more interested in the mysterious goings-on at Mount Zion. Some guys in the tavern made a bet that one of them couldn't cut off Matthias's beard and bring it back as a trophy. So one of them, known locally as Elephant Taylor, dressed up as a constable and then managed to convince Matthias that he was under arrest and had to go with him down to the village and and even convinced him that uh, Matthias should shave off his own beard so that the rowdy mobs outside the house wouldn't recognize him on his way out. Matthias, clever as he was, fell for this uh, hook, line, and sinker, much to the delight of the mobs around his house in Sing Sing. When he was finally returned to Mount Zion, Matthias packed a bag and took off for the relative safety of the city. As all this is happening, Elijah Pearson was becoming more and more out of touch with reality. He was having frequent fits, his eyesight was failing, his teeth were rotting, all his business schemes, like the fancy stoves to fund the kingdom, had failed, and he still had not been reunited with his dead wife. Sometimes he would mistake Anne for his own wife, and once tried to grab her while touching himself. Then, yeah, you know, then one afternoon the family ate dinner back at Mount Zion and shared some blackberries. Elijah ate two bowls, while the rest of the family only picked at them. That night, Elijah died. Dun, dun, dun! Oh my, things just took a turn. So Elijah's death created immediate problems for the kingdom of Matthias. First was the coroner's understandable curiosity about Elijah's sudden illness and death. Matthias wanted him buried immediately right there in Sing Sing, but Elijah's remaining family from New Jersey insisted that his body be returned back to the family seat of Morristown. 
Matthias and his followers headed back into Manhattan to wait for things to sort of blow over. Um, But this created the perfect opportunity for the county treasurer to seize Mount Zion because Benjamin Folger had recently placed it legally in Elijah Pearson's name. It was therefore now part of Pearson's estate. Matthias, however, refused to hand over the deed papers to the county's lawyers, saying that Mount Zion actually belonged to his spiritual kingdom, and he would, quote, test the strength of the Gentile laws in order to keep it that way. But when it came down to it, in other words, when the lawyers filed a suit against him to get the papers, Matthias folded and handed them over. Benjamin Folger, already losing his trust in the prophet, started to worry about Elijah's sudden death. When he shared his surprise with Matthias, the prophet snarled that, quote, all his enemies would get the same treatment. This statement suggested that Matthias had some kind of power over life and death and had maybe used those powers against Elijah. Although the coroner had initially ruled the death natural, the larger community in Sing Sing refused to believe that Elijah had simply died. Soon the coroner ordered that Elijah's body be disinterred and inspected by coroners in Morristown, New Jersey, where it had been buried. They reported that the body was badly decomposed, it had been two weeks since his death, but that his stomach was well preserved, and in it, they discovered some concerning findings and reported that they had no question that Elijah Pearson had been killed with poison. Dun, dun, dun! (laughs) Oh, and uh, did we mention that by this point, Ann Folger is pregnant? Well, she is. Uh, Woohoo! The holy baby son is on its way. Uh, But... Um, despite this apparently holy pregnancy, Anne was also showing signs that her spiritual marriage to Matthias wasn't actually going very well. When Matthias fled back to New York, Benjamin and Anne took up their previous sleeping arrangements and acted like they were just married again, which technically they still were. Amid the confusion surrounding Elijah's death, Anne was spending more time with Benjamin, and the prophet was getting increasingly jealous and angry. Another member of the community, Catherine, discovered Benjamin and Anne alone together and remarked bitterly, what a devilish shame it is. That woman wants two or three men. When Matthias found Benjamin and Anne together another time, all hell broke loose. The three argued constantly. At this point in this chaos, Isabella Van Wagenen served Benjamin and Anne some undrinkably bitter coffee, an event that stuck in Benjamin's mind. This will become important later on. Matthias claimed that Anne was destroying the whole community, and Benjamin tried to claim his own patriarchal role by telling Matthias to stop trying to control his family. Anne declared Benjamin was her true husband. Matthias and Benjamin bickered over who was the better man, and Anne declared that it was Benjamin. Finally, Benjamin offered to essentially pay Matthias to leave. Matthias, who had already been contemplating his next steps as Sing Sing became increasingly hostile, took $630 from his rival and planned vaguely to head west to begin a new home for the kingdom. He would take Isabella, the black servant, with him, as well as a couple of other members of the community. But almost the minute Matthias left, Benjamin went to the police and filed a report claiming that Matthias had stolen exactly $630 (laughs) and issued a $100 reward for anyone who could catch him and bring him back. So tricky. I know, I like it. Matthias learned about the police report and prepared to flee, but before he could get far, he was arrested. When they went through his things, they found suitcases full of expensive clothing and a gold watch. Matthias also carried his ancient sword, or the quote, the sword of Gideon, miraculously preserved for thousands of years, and a carpenter's rule, which he claimed would be used to, quote, measure lots in the new Jerusalem. 
When the police seized those precious items, they found the sword was clearly made for a U.S. Army officer, and the carpenter's rule had a maker's mark to 164 Water Street, New York. (laughs) Also one of my favorite parts of this book. Like, I laughed out loud. (laughs) Matthias was hit with charges of fraud and embezzlement. He was held at Bellevue Hospital because of his rantings and erratic behavior. In court, he behaved no better, completely refusing, oh, completely confusing the court reporter who frantically tried to get down everything that he yelled about being the spirit of truth and a priest most high. The New York City press seized on the story. I mean, it had everything. Sex, religion, financial crimes. Pamphlets were being churned out to tell the story in greater detail. As Paul Johnson and Sean Wilentz um, wrote in their book, Historians of Jacksonian America normally focus on great political and social issues when interpreting the events of 1834 and 1835, the rise of the Whig Party, the growing rifts over slavery and abolitionism. But to judge from the New York newspapers, the Kingdom of Matthias was among the lead stories. At the urging of Isabella Van Wagenen, Matthias's wife Margaret came into the city for the trial and hired Matthias an attorney. Benjamin Folger, recognizing that he that the case could publicly humiliate him as a foolish cuckold, went on the offensive, taking out space in the newspapers to publish his own version of the story. He also started spreading rumors that Isabella Van Wagenen had tried to poison him. You remember the bitter coffee? Just like Matthias had poisoned Elijah Pearson. Isabella then sued Benjamin for slander and provided testimonials from several previous employers that could prove her good and ostensibly not murderous character. But when Matthias's fraud trial opened, the district attorney began the proceedings by saying that the trial couldn't really go forward. First, he said that the case would end up getting mired in whether or not Matthias truly was a holy prophet, which was not something the state was interested in attempting to prove. Second, and more importantly, the case seemed trivial compared to a case being brought against Matthias in a different county, this one for the death of Elijah Pearson. Even though Matthias's attorneys tried to argue that the case needed to be fully tried so that they could prove definitively the prophet's innocence, the court dismissed the case and sent Matthias to Westchester County to be tried for murder. While the attorneys were trying to decide how to handle Isabella's slander case and Matthias's impending murder trial, something else happened. Ann Folger gave birth to a baby. And it wasn't Matthias's prophesied holy son. It was a baby girl. <laughs> One thing that this doesn't address, and, and it probably because there is no evidence either way, is whether or not that baby was Matthias's or Benjamin's. It, it, I, I'm going to guess that it was probably mm. virtually impossible to tell that, but that is, I think, worth asking. Either way, the press was having an absolute field day with this entire mess. The partisan press took entirely different approaches to making sense of Matthias, his cult, and the present trials. Many of them used Matthias as an example of the religious disorder of fanaticism, a mental illness that many in the burgeoning discipline of psychiatry considered the result of too much religious excitement. This was becoming a major problem, they believed, during the the fervor of the Second Great Awakening. One newspaper tried to analyze Matthias using the new science of phrenology, determining that his head, according to pictures that they saw reproduced um, of him, indicated large amativeness, uh, whatever that is. And they said that he had small reflective and perceptive faculties, concluding that he had a, quote, committed and ignorant mind invested with unusual powers of imagination, self-esteem, and marvelousness. Other newspapers saw the whole story as one of masculine moral failings, saying that no one was safe if genteel businessmen like Elijah Pearson and Benjamin Folger could fall under the sway of such a zealot. The editor of the Commercial Advertiser, a man named William Lee Stone, who had once been actually close to the radical woman Frances Folger, 
that Elijah Pearson had worked with early on in this story, um, blamed not the followers, but the evils of people who didn't know their place. Women, like Frances Folger, had talked out of turn and preached like men. Poor, unemployed men who thought that they could still be leaders and black former slaves like Isabella Van Wagenen, who acted as a minion carrying out Matthias's murderous commands. The murder trial lasted four days. Once Matthias had a captive audience, he tried to rule the courtroom, screaming about the injustices of the process over the calls of the judge for order until the sheriff physically restrained him and removed him from the courtroom. Popular opinion was that Matthias was obviously guilty and should be immediately hanged. But the court had to rely on the evidence, and there wasn't much. The doctors who examined Pearson's corpse had to admit that they hadn't chemically analyzed the contents of the dead man's stomach, so they couldn't testify that it contained poison. The maintenance man of the graveyard from which Pearson's body had been dug up couldn't even swear that the body that had been exhumed was Pearson's. And even when Ann Folger testified that she was certain Matthias had poisoned Pearson, the prophet's attorney turned it back against her in cross-examination. She was the, quote, mother of Mount Zion. Wasn't she actually tasked with the care of the residents? If Elijah was sick, shouldn't she have nursed him back to health? Who prepared the food, Matthias or the women? Wasn't it reasonable to conclude then that if anyone did it, it was Anne who poisoned Elijah? The next morning, the case in tatters, the judge instructed the jury to find Matthias not guilty. They did, and the case was dropped. But the court was not quite done with Matthias. During the final phase of the trial, another case had been brought against Matthias. This one brought by Charles Laisdell, the husband of Matthias's daughter, Isabella, who Matthias had so cruelly beaten before trying to marry her off to Benjamin Folger. That case didn't go smoothly for the district attorney either. Isabella Laisdell swore that she had forgiven her father for the assault. But ultimately, Charles Laisdell was convincing to the judge in his complaint, uh, saying that by beating Isabella Laisdell, Matthias had violated Charles's rights as a husband. As a married woman, Isabella belonged to Charles to correct, and it was no longer her father's right to correct her with corporal punishment. Matthias was found guilty and carted off to jail for three months. The judge advised him to serve his time, shave his face, and get a job. The story of the kingdom of Matthias continued to rattle around in American culture. William Leet Stone, the one who called Isabella and Matthias equally evil, wrote a book about the entire saga with the cooperation of the Folgers. Margaret Matthews, still Matthias's legal wife, published a ghost-written pamphlet about her husband's early life. And though she admitted Matthias must be deranged, she managed to blame all of the real trouble on Benjamin Folger. After all, it was Benjamin who had tried to seduce her daughter. Isabella Van Wagnen set out to tell her own story, determined not to let Stone slander her as Benjamin Folger had tried. Isabella, who was open about her own Christian mysticism and deep belief that she had had communications with God, continued to profess her belief in Matthias's message. She was very happy, however, to spill all the tea about the inner workings of the kingdom at Mount Zion. Together with a radical freethinker and religious critic named Gilbert Vale, Isabella wrote and published her account of the whole affair in 1835. But after the initial buzz, the whole thing faded from the region's and nation's attentions. Herman Melville, who had lived close to where Matthias had first preached in Manhattan for a period, made a few veiled references to the prophet in his writing, and other 19th century writers, including Edgar Allan Poe, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and Walt Whitman, borrowed little bits and pieces of the wild tale for their works of fiction, but none were specific enough to actually reference Matthias or his kingdom. For the most part, the kingdom of Matthias fell out of American history, understood as a strange aberration rather than as an example of a long tradition of Americans seeking to find alternatives to the dominant religions and cultural expectations. Matthias's disciples scattered. 
The Folgers resumed a pretty normal life in Sing Sing. Sylvester Mills spent some time in the Bloomingdale Lunatic Asylum, but he recovered and married and lived a happy, conventional life. Matthias served out his term in jail, and when he was released, he tried, actually, to return home to his poor, beleaguered wife, Margaret. She, thank God, refused to let him come home, which I think is pretty damn understandable. So instead, he wandered about slowly drifting west. He was kicked out of more than one community. Apparently, the citizens of Little Rock, Arkansas, actually held him down, shaved his beard, and then threatened to kill him if he ever came back. What happened to him ultimately isn't known, but it's generally sort of accepted that he died probably somewhere in Iowa in 1841. As for Isabella Van Wagenen, she had the most interesting transformation after the end of the Kingdom of Matthias. And this is where I need to say, this book has an unexpected twist ending. So if you'd rather save that twist and read it for yourself, this is where I'd go ahead and just skip the end. You can come back after you've read it. But if you want me to spoil it, I will very happily do that because I'm going to do that for Avril right now. Isabella Van Wagenen went back to work for a former employer in New York after Matthias left. She had stuck by Matthias, but she was also just really disturbed by the sexual mess that the prophet had plunged this whole religious society into. Eventually, she moved on from Matthias's beliefs and began to search again. She decided that she needed a fresh start outside of her home state of New York, where she had been born enslaved. But before she left Manhattan to embark on her own religious wanderings, she had another religious experience. This time, God spoke to her and told her her name was not Isabella Van Wagenen anymore. She was to call herself Sojourner Truth. What? (laughs) So I have to tell you, this book was published in 1994. Like, this is not... This is not in any way like a new book. And not only that, but it's a it is a standard. It is on PhD exam reading lists. It is assigned very regularly to undergrads because it's really short and it's really weird and it's you know interesting to to read. Um and I have been told like a gajillion times to read this book by various people or it's come up in various ways. I've never read it until now. It is astounding to me that no one ever spoiled the ending. Like, I literally was sitting here and I went, what? <laughs> like, I screamed. <laughs> Which is funny because, like, somewhere in the back of my mind, I knew that Sojourner Truth's name, her birth name was Isabella. And, you know, it, but it just never, it, it just never, ever clicked. So, yeah, that's the kingdom of Matthias. Well, now I don't have to read it. Now you don't have to read it. Let's face it, you were not going to read it anyway. I was definitely never going to read it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's um it is a, it's a strange little book. It's really easy to read. Um it's really interesting. And I think that it does um it it's a really interesting counterpoint to the the traditional story of the Second Great Awakening, right, which is really dominated by the the Finney revivalism. And then all of these other kind of alternative religions are kind of sprinkled in as like, haha, these silly people, like they were kind of outside on the margins. And this is a good example to sort of remind us that like there was just tons of experimentation and these really small movements that were happening all over New York State and, and all over the United States at this time. So um, and and not all of them were as what at the time served as progressive, right? As, mm-hmm. you know, believe it or not, the Finneyites were super progressive compared to folks like Matthias and his followers. So, mm. um, yeah, I mean, this kind of came out of, of the research for our book, which is really sort of centered around events, um, or at least it's kind of born out of events that happened in the Second Great Awakening. And I think it's an interesting and weird counterpoint it's also just a really good dig story (laughs) yeah it is good dig that's all i got and the baby is wailing hysterically 
So we better wrap this baby up. Thank you for listening. As always, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at dig underscore history. Uh, you can visit our swag store on the website digpodcast.org, which is also where you'll find all of our transcripts and show notes, um, other episodes that may be of interest to you. And if you're an educator, we have free teacher resources, um, including full lesson plans incorporating episodes from the podcast um, and how to work it in with supplemental primary source reader activities, the full gamut, all created by our wonderful educational contractor um, or consultant, uh, Hannah Van Reed. Yeah, totally. Really awesome resources. I'm so thrilled that she's been doing all this awesome work for us. Yeah, we're really, really lucky. Teach this episode. I hope this episode is useful for teachers. I think it will be. Yeah, I think it will be too. All right. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Um, oh, my God. Oh, I thought you were spitting like violently. I was like, what's happening? <laughs> um, what we're talking about. Oh, my God. What we're talking about. And- she estimated that Finney helped to convert some... No, it's sorry, it's he. Oh. Whitney, is a he? Who planned to build a Jewish... Ri- oh my god. Who planned to... Tensions would have dom- would have domed him to... Fi- would have doomed him to failure. End quote. Um, in 1833. Um, and this is when the, the house servant Isabella began... There's a crying baby outside my door. I'm gonna say that again. An omnibus, a big carriage pulled by horses. From God. The original bus. <laughs> the original bus. From, uh, he, got, he received visions from God telling him, quote, Thou art Elijah the Tishbite. No idea. <laughs> Don't ask me what Elijah the Tishbite. I mean, could I have, should I have done research into what Elijah the Tishbite refers to? Sure. But I didn't. <laughs> it has something to do with like ancient Hebrew prophets or something. While he was satisfied at first, it wasn't long before his wife. Hold on. I was looking at a picture of Josh Allen. <laughs> Not paying attention. His wife, Averill. <laughs> you know, it was my find and replace. <laughs> Elizabeth. Uh, it was obviously Elizabeth. 